Hi friends, you're listening to Autism and Us with me, Maisie. When my son was diagnosed with autism at the age of four, I didn't know anything about autism. Oh wait, I'd seen Rain Man in the 80s. At the beginning, I felt devastated, isolated and afraid. Diagnosis day, the darkest of my life. It wasn't the masses of written information I was given that helped me. It was sharing stories with other Spectrum parents I met along the way, giving me tips and advice, and most importantly, made me feel like I'm not alone. I am no expert and don't claim to be. I'm a parent at the start of my journey. Each episode, I will be talking to a parent or a close family member of someone with autism, and they will share their story from the early years to diagnosis to present day. Welcome to Autism and Us. Today, I'm joined by Candida, Candida is the manager of Signal, and Candida was actually the first ever person I reached out to when we received Charlie's diagnosis, when I wanted to join Signal, and she has been a massive help to me in my journey so far. She has two children on the spectrum, which can be quite common, so I'm really, really looking forward to hearing all about her story. Hello, Candida. Hello, Lucy. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the podcast today. That's my pleasure. Um, so today we're going to be talking about your son, Harry. Yes. And could you tell me a bit about your life um, before Harry? Because I think it's really, yes. I think in a sense, we're all somebody, of course, before we have kids. Yes. And it's often hard to remember who that person was. <laughs> but it's always lovely to put that into context. So, yeah, where were you born? Yes. What yes. you did? Well, I was born and brought up uh, in Forest Hill. And I met my partner, my children's dad, at university in oh, London. Oh, yes. cool. What were you he studying? Was, I was studying economics and accountancy. Oh, clever. He was actually the brother of a girl on my course. Okay. So I met him through her. Kanda, come on, you met him in the pub, let's be honest. I met him at his parents' house. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> I went to stay with her and her parents and he oh, was there. He'd been cool living abroad brother. and had come home for the weekend. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, yes, one thing led to another. We got married quite soon after that. So you then, were quite, well, young, I guess, in today's... I was 22. God, that is young. Which is young, married. Yeah. Looking back. And you're working? I was working, yes. So I graduated and then I did professional accountancy exams and qualified. And I worked as an accountant in the city in investment banking. Hmm. So, um, professional, you know, career. All You're taking all the boxes there. <laughs> Husband, got the career. I had the flat and the car and the job and everything and really wasn't interested in having children at that time. We'd always kind of assumed that one day we would, uh, but just kind of never got around to it. And then I hit my mid-30s, as we, as we do, and I thought, oh, <laughs> perhaps I'd better do something about this if I'm ever going to do it so uh, we we did uh, as they say start trying to have children mm. uh, took a while um, and wasn't easy and I was about to start treatment really uh, uh, yes yeah, so they were going to start giving me drugs and stuff and I went to the appointment for the first round of treatment and found I was pregnant <laughs> so that was and that was Harry and what, so, what year was that that was 1999. 1999. And so that's when I gave up my job. And I decided oh, cool. at that point that I wasn't going to try and go back to work. I was going to be a full-time mum. Um, did you stop working during the pregnancy? or I 
Do you know, I actually stopped working shortly before I got pregnant because one of the things they told me was that probably a large factor, it was uh, stress, yeah, which was affecting my ability to get pregnant. Sure enough, I got pregnant within about two weeks of handing in my resignation. <laughs> Pregnancy, I hated. Oh, I God, did not like being I, pregnant I, I did at not all. Like I was very, very either. ill. I had fantastic hair, and that's the only positive thing I can say. Oh, God, yeah. I was enormous and sick and, oh, just... Did I you just have the Kate Middleton? Felt. No, I just had permanent nausea. Fortunately, I wasn't actually physically. I just had permanent nausea. Per oh, my God. And I thought after the first three months it would go away, and it didn't. Uh, he was overdue. Oh, yeah. And I was induced. Oh, I was as well. Uh, which was pretty grim. And then eventually they did an emergency caesarean under a general anaesthetic because mm. they panicked and they said, we haven't even got time to put in an epidural. We have to put you under. Sign here. So I signed and they pressed the big red button on the wall and the crash team came. Oh, it was terrifying. Yeah. It was terrifying. And poor old Hugh, dad was sent outside, he wasn't allowed in. And So you you literally go to sleep? Yes, within five minutes I was unconscious. You wake up. And, and I woke up and there was a baby. You're a mum. <laughs> so in the hospital, which I love the, the the couple of days afterwards where you've got this sort of button and you press it if you need the help and they come and show you how to do yeah. the nappies and you're like, I love you, never leave me. And as soon as you get home, you're like, I don't know what well, to do. Well, it was do. difficult even then because I couldn't get him to feed. So I was trying okay. to breastfeed and it really wasn't working and I didn't get any help. And eventually they started to give him a bottle because he was starving. He cried non-stop, Jesus. And eventually they put me in a, a room on my own because we were disturbing all the other mothers. That must have been quite hard as a first-time really mum. So I was stuck in a room by myself with this non-stop crying baby who wouldn't feed. So looking back, like you say, looking back, there seemed to be probably lots of things that if I'd... Even if I had known, I, I don't know if I would have picked up. One of the things, one of the big problems actually, was that he doesn't like to be touched. And even as a baby, he didn't like to be touched. So he would fight me all the time physically. And this is, you know... A small a, a baby. baby. And in order to feed him at all, I would have to tight swaddle him in the blanket. Otherwise he would thrash and I couldn't feed him. So he'd look like a little grub with his head sticking out. What did you think? So I had to immobilise him, basically. Yeah. I just thought I was a terrible mother, obviously. What else, you know... Yeah. So that went on for several months. He, he like cried yeah. all the time. He hardly slept. And I kept a, a log because I'm an accountant, it's what I do. I kept a log <laughs> of when I was sleeping, when I was trying to feed him, and when the health visitor would come around, I'd show her this thing and, said, and she'd weigh him and all that. So I know this is true because I wrote it down at the time and that certainly for the first four months at least, I was getting about two hours sleep in every 24 in chunks of half an hour and I if you see photographs of me at the time I look like the walking dead looking back it was really really grim um, and did it make you fight with Hugh at the time or was he I was just too tired yeah to do anything I, I, I had no a shell I it was yeah I, I, I did wonder what the hell I'd done and um, but I must have I must have accepted it or embraced it in some way because um, Eddie was born when Harry was 18 months old. So, Oh, God, Kansas. Put know, yourself through. But the th well, the thing was, there is, a, there is a good reason behind it. I'd always said that if we have any children, I'd want to have at least two. I didn't want an only child. 
for whatever reason. So I knew that I wanted another just because that's what I wanted. And that because we'd had such difficulty with getting Harry in the first place, uh, we were advised, you know, if you want to try getting another baby, then you need to get on because uh, it might not happen again. Needless to say, it happened almost straight away. <laughs> and that was a really, really tough time, actually, because Harry was very big, very heavy, and was not walking at all. So this is about a year, his so, year now? Yes. So by the time I was again heavily pregnant with Eddie, big, Harry's not walking, couldn't get himself up and down the stairs. So I would, Hugh, Hugh was still working full time at this point, he'd sort of get us all down the stairs in the morning. We'd have to stay downstairs until he got home because I couldn't get Harry up the stairs. So you've and got a young So I'd got, I'd got the baby, I'd got Harry who was... Oh, oh, golly. Looking back, it's quite tragic. I was so pleased with myself because we tried to prepare Harry for having a new baby in the house. So I'd got this baby doll and I'd sort of hold the doll and say, this is going to be the baby and and put it in a little crib and have the baby around so that Harry would get used to this idea of having a, a, a sibling. And Eddie arrived and Harry was totally accepting. I look back now and realise it wasn't that at all. Harry was oblivious. Harry didn't realise there was a difference between the doll and the actual baby. So by this time, Harry was 18 months and, you know, we were going to, I was taking him to toddler groups and um, monkey music and things like this. And I started to realise that he was very, very different to all the other children. He didn't want to ever take part in anything. He didn't really want to be in the same room as anybody else if he didn't have to be. Uh, so if we were in a room at playgroup, he'd, he'd kind of try and be somewhere else. Uh, he didn't try and engage me in anything. All the other kids would start talking to their mums and saying, or oh, just say, mummy, mummy, or, you know, point at something or try and get their parents involved in what they were doing or other children. None of that with Harry. Um, would you describe it as him being in his own world? Totally in his own world. Totally. And he would sit on the floor, because he still wasn't walking, he'd sit on the floor and just spin these rings obsessively and failing that we'd have to find a washing machine to go round. And we had a local route that I'd go round all the local laundrettes, so Forest Hill and Sydenham, Honor Oak Park, Crofton Park. And stop at all the laundrettes? Me, and I'd take a book and stop at each laundrette for like half an hour and so watch the tumble dries, especially, they were great. And, and then move on to the next one. And and you're living that this is your life. This but is my when, life. But when did... Oh, my God. When did someone... <laughs> did someone else say or did you say... It was me, eventually. Well, it was a combination of things. So we did... We were doing this group very locally, just at the end of my road, called Monkey Music. And you'd go along with your preschool toddler and you'd all sit in a semicircle and the lovely women at the front would sing the songs and you'd do the hand clapping and the games and... Harry became less and less engaged to the point where after some weeks of doing this, he was sitting on my lap, facing me, pinning my arms to my side. So that not only was he not engaging, but he stopped me engaging and we would just sit there for half an hour not doing anything because he clearly didn't want to be there, or, mm. or, but he didn't know what else to do, so he, he would just stop engaging. Try and disappear. And, yeah, and eventually the woman who ran it, Rebecca, goodness me, she 
I remember it to this day. These, these times are still really, really vivid. And she took me by the hand after the session one day and she said, I need you to meet somebody. You need to come meet Jean, who ran the nursery upstairs mm. in the same building. And she took me upstairs to meet Jean with Harry. And uh, I don't know if there was some sort of secret code between them or what, because I knew this was a hugely popular local nursery with a very long waiting list that I hadn't even bothered applying to get into because I knew I didn't have a hope. And uh, Jean said to me, would you, would, you like to, uh, would you like Harry to come to the nursery here? And I, and I said, oh, can I think about it? <laughs> Instead of saying, yes. Uh, and she went, yes, of course. I went away and I said, this is very odd. So I went back the next week and I said, well, yes, that would be great. And she said, okay, we'll, we'll have him. And they didn't mention the A word? I think they knew. Yeah. I think they knew. I think Rebecca recognised it. Yeah. And I think she must have given Jean the nod in some way. I've yeah. never had it, you know, explained. I think they knew. And so he started at the nursery on his third birthday, it was by then. And he had no idea. So, so the, the guy he was sort of signing him in, who became his key worker, uh, was filling in the form and said, what's Harry's date of birth? And I said his date of birth. And he went, oh, that's today. Happy birthday, Harry. And Harry was oblivious. You know, he had no idea what this meant, oh, yeah. who these people were or what was going on. And he's nonverbal at this point or just muttering an odd word? He's, or? he's kind of verbal, but what he says doesn't really make sense. Or it sounds like it does... But it's not, it's not functional. In so, no, he had no concept of pronouns or, or the difference between pronouns. So me, him, you, I, them, us, all meant the same to him. He had no way of distinguishing. So he was in all sorts of difficulties because he couldn't make people understand what he was trying to say because what he actually said wasn't what he meant yeah. and he couldn't understand why he wasn't being understood. Would he have meltdown? So, would he, yes. he would hugely born out of frustration yeah. because nobody was understanding him. Yeah. It was awful. It was nobody's fault. I guess the reason you they, think potentially they'd said go to this nursery because they'd had other children yes, presenting I think so. similarly. I think so, looking back. And they were fantastic with him. And he went basically full time. Not a long, long day, but sort of I took him in the morning and he stayed for lunch and I picked him up at three o'clock or whatever it was which gave me a break oh, it was yeah it was so good for me just to have that break from her not that I didn't adore him yeah but, but it's not it's it not easy such 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 hard work yeah. and relentless um and they weren't really... So by the, one of the things they did, which was really remarkable, was they got him to eat. So he, he had an extremely limited diet. He would eat bread and yoghurt. Mm. And that was basically all I could get him to eat. So, so this is an interesting point. So I just wanted to explain to our listeners. So a lot of children on the spectrum have issues around restricted diet. Mm. And actually one of the courses that I went on said um, it's a lot to do with uniformity. So they like foods that look the same yes. and they always taste the same with every yes. bite because anxiety about change yes. is something that runs through them. And, so and, Charlie is the same. So chicken nuggets look a big thing because yes. they taste the same yes. with every bite. Hula and hoops. they seem to also tend to be, I think, quite bland. Oh, white or So beige. white bread, white yogurt, sometimes cereal, but those are his mm. basic food groups. And as a mother, when you're feeding your child 
I mean, you just you just do it because they don't need yes. anything else. But you just worry of so course. much. And again, I was assuming I was just something wrong with me. Although I was starting to get an inkling that it wasn't just me. And so, for example, they set up this program with Harry, and each day he was there for lunch, and they would say, "Right, Harry, if you eat this pea, you can have a slice of bread." So he'd eat the pea, and then he'd have a slice of bread, so and he'd be mo- happy. So the most day would be there. it would be a slice of carrot. And the next day, it might be two peas. And seriously, they worked on him one slice on of pea carrot by pea at by pea. a time. Pea by pea. I now know what I found out uh, not long after, really, after we got the diagnosis, what's called a passive autistic. So he was incredibly passive and unassertive to the extent that he had no sense of autonomy, no sense of self. So if you asked him to do something... He would just do it if you asked him to give you something. So we arrived one day, he'd had a meltdown because a new member of staff had asked him to give her his comfort blanket, which he took everywhere with him. And of course he did because he didn't know how to say no. And then he didn't But at the same time he was devastated. He was inconsolable. And I had to go in and I say, well, you've got his blanket. And she she was, of course, really upset. She didn't realise what she'd done and was horrified to find that she'd been the cause of his distress. And I said, he just doesn't know how to say no. He literally can't say no to anybody or anything. And that's been a struggle over many, many years. I've spent many, many hours over the last 18 years trying to teach Harry how to assert himself. So he's still three. Still and three. one of the things the nursery sort of, I went to pick him up one day and he would say things like, don't, don't come back, don't come and pick, don't, I don't want to go. But we still don't really know whether that's what he meant to say because his pronouns especially were so confused. It's impossible to know what he was actually trying to say. The other funny thing really looking back was he referred to me and his dad for a long time as Peaches, I was Peaches, and his dad was Mr. Tickle. Never mind. From Mr. Men books? No, it's not Mr. Men, as it happens. And the nursery said, do you know why he calls you Peaches and Mr. Tickle? We went, nope, we have no idea, but that's what he calls us. And eventually we found out he'd been watching a cartoon about this little boy called Jojo the Clown, who lived with his mum and dad in the circus and his, they were Peaches and Mr Tickle so the only way Harry could work out who we were living in his house was that we must be he's Jojo the clown therefore we must be Peaches and Mr Tickle so this is all kind of building up right it's building up and yeah. eventually the last straw for me and I was the one you know full time caring for him was one day we were I was trying to take them so I can't remember if I had to go and buy milk or we were going to the I can't remember Harry was walking by this point, but I had him on reins because he was a bolter. And I had Eddie in the buggy and I was sort of out at the front door. I can't have had the reins on Harry at this point. He was standing in the doorway. And I did that thing that parents do to try and get their children to come with them and just say, all right, I'm going now, Harry. Bye, bye, as I set off down my very short path to the gate. And he looked at me and shut the door. With, with him inside the house on his own and me outside. I'm like, that's not right. That's not what's meant to happen. He just doesn't care that he's now in the house on his own. Surely a normal child will come running after yeah. the mother thinking they might never see them again. Yeah, they thought he yeah. was oblivious. A neurotypical child will fall for that every time. Yes. And so that day, I phoned the health visitor and I said, I've got 
some problems with Harry. And so we had a long conversation on the phone and she said, yeah, there's definitely something going on there. I'm coming to see you tomorrow. So she came the next day. We had a long chat and she said, I'm referring you to what was then Priory Manor. So what's now Kaleidoscope, but this is before Kaleidoscope, so right. Priory Manor, for an assessment. And she didn't mention autism at that point. But I sort of was putting it together myself because... Although as an adult I had no experience of autism, I didn't really know anybody else with autistic kids that I knew, where I grew up in Forest Hill, um, our next door neighbours, and those of you in the autism world will know these names, were John and Lorna Wing, experts in autism, and their severely autistic daughter Susie. Uh, who used to wander into our garden and into our house and she'd pick up anything shiny and take it back to their house. Every so often Lorna would pop round and say, this is what Susie's borrowed. And we said, thanks. And so I kind of had this in the back of my head, oh. this example that I, I grew up next door to. This uh, Did she did she verbally person. stim? Did she... Or she, she was, yeah. She was loud, so noisy. She was very loud, flapping, where she had no discernible speech so um and she would be in the garden a lot of the time rocking and wailing basically doing her thing doing her thing and of course I just thought it's not that I thought it was normal but it was just part of my childhood and you knew Susie has autism yes right and so in a way I thought perhaps that's what it is and I spoke to my mum about it because my mum was good friends with Lorna and was very familiar with Susie and would look after her when she came round to our house and uh, my mum said yes I think she, I think it might be autism but because oh, really? because Susie was because they, they all present so differently yes. I guess because because Harry hadn't been exactly matching exactly. Susie's description exactly. it didn't come to your mind straight away it didn't away. occur to if if he'd been more like Susie perhaps then I might have thought of it sooner but I sort of thought well you know he he if we do hide and seek games he laughs and he's he can't be autistic because and I kept thinking of lots of different reasons why he wasn't so anyway so the health visitor arranged for us to go to the communication clinic and we took Harry with us and you know he they they were clearly observing him as well as talking to us and asked us lots of questions and he did his things he'd get stuff out of the toy box and just spin the wheels or he'd spinned it that was all he ever did and the one thing I remember them saying to us was does he point it was almost a throwaway line does he point at things and Hugh and I just went no it's not even something you think about is it no but we both said without hesitation no he's never pointed at anything and they clearly thought "Mm, okay so they said they said we're not going to give you a, a, a diagnosis now we want to see you again in six months, come back and um, we'll see if there's been any change. So, fair enough. So, so you went back six months later and you yes, said, and they, and they he's said, not miraculously... He's not miraculously got better, yeah. isn't his speech has not improved. And they said, we, we're going to give you a, a diagnosis of autism. And they said it kind of very diffidently, as if we were going to be upset. And I was like, thank goodness for that. There's a I name for this. I was so relieved, relieved that we could name this thing that I was struggling with and that he was struggling with, bless him, and that, you know, it meant that it wasn't my fault. 
<laughs> yeah. and that I'd been doing. I do look back and think I would have done, you know, things very, very differently if I'd known. But I didn't know, and I did my best, and I have to not beat myself up over it. Um, but it was just a huge, huge relief, actually. Yeah. And so we went back to the nursery the next day and said, "We've just had this diagnosis," and they looked and they went, "Yeah, we know." Do you know what the thing is now as well? Is that I feel like I can tell straight away. Yeah. And it's so difficult because I now know how, because my sister mm. knew because she's a teacher and she sees right. it a lot and she felt she couldn't bless her mm. say because yeah. she wanted me to come to my own conclusion. But it took me a long, long time yeah. to think because I was like, love love goggles. Oh, he's perfect the way he is. It's yeah, hard, exactly. but, you know, mm. he's going to talk in his own time mm. and, you know, just got worse and worse. But, yeah. yeah. Is it even with babies now? I can see, you know, the ones that seem completely indifferent to their mum yes. being there. I think, yes. or the ones that insist on being on their own, or have this very obsessive bit. There's all sorts of tells. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's so that I can spot, but it's very difficult because you don't want to go around not, saying your child's autistic, no. don't you know? No, it's not really in a. It's not really appropriate. Should, is it? It's not. But at the but, same time, I wish somebody had said it to me. I do as well. I wish I, my mum had said something yeah. sooner. I actually said to her, "Why didn't you say something?" And she said, "Because it wasn't my place." To, yeah. But you know, in my mum, if it's not your place, whose place is it? I guess. I guess that's the thing. Is like I wish someone had said sooner, but I wouldn't want. To, I wouldn't want to be that person. So it's yes, that weird. It's tricky, isn't it? So which, which way do you go? I don't know. Mm. So the nursery had been treating with him and dealing with him as if he had an autism diagnosis which was which is why they'd been so good with him so yeah and they kind of said yeah we know I was like oh <laughs> and did you fret okay. about the future like did you sit down and go what does this mean like yes. what does the next sort of what I'm interested in because obviously it was um not 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 ages ago but a few years ago now so mm. did you think yes this was 15 um, years ago 15 years so, ago so yeah. you sat down and you thought okay so what can we do yes. to, to help Harry yes. be the best that he yes, can be exactly. and what do the next sort of 10 years look well, we like we threw ourselves into our own education as parents so we went on the courses and we bought the books and we um joined Signal <laughs> local autism support group uh, which was fantastic and a lifeline really to meet other families with other autistic children because which it, is the most it's helpful it really thing. is because although all the kids are different the parents especially understand each even though you know, your your child does one thing and another child does a different thing at its heart they're similar difficulties and similar attitudes and you know they all have certain things that most of them do and you can sympathize even if it's not exactly the same thing you, you just get it where other with the best will in the world other parents don't get it um, and you wouldn't wish them to that's the thing it's yeah, like god i don't want this it's you know light of my life everything charlie but yeah. at the same time it's like I mean, my friends are so great. They try and understand. They try and spend a lot of time with Charlie, which mm. is brilliant because yeah. I said to them, that's what it takes yeah. time to spend with them. It is. And He's I, not going to give a lot to you, yeah. but he will if you... Yes, it, it's... I think the, one of the things with Harry was that he was so... This sounds like a terrible thing to say. He was, when he was little especially, he was very unrewarding because he I, didn't I communicate. That. He didn't like to be touched, so I'd yeah. never had a hug from him. Charlie's just started to hug me now and mm. it was it's taken about... I actually took a picture of him hugging me this morning because mm. it was the first time he's actually opened and put his arms around and given that force yeah. around the hug. And how and old I, is he now? Five and a half. Right. See, Harry didn't give me a hug until he was about 15. Wow. Yeah. I've held his hand 
twice in his entire life, oh twice, God. and I remember well, them both. That's the thing I remember saying, I can't enjoy him, I can't no. enjoy this. Autism has taken everything away. Mm. This is the reason I had a child, so I could watch yeah. Disney, so I could yeah. cuddle, so I and could you, and you teach. you don't have any of that. Yeah, it's... It's very difficult, oh, it really is. And I hate to admit it as a mother, but part yeah. of it is getting the feedback from the child. And when you don't have that feedback, it's relentless and it's thankless, literally. Yeah. But you still do it because you still love them. He's a very likeable child, so he had he was very popular at school. So does he go but to main? Uh, he, he goes. Well, he did, yes. Which surprised us all. He went to the local primary school um, because initially we were told, you know, he might need to go to special school. But he went to the local primary, who were very, very good with autistic children. Actually, uh, we were very lucky; they were our nearest school, and they have a very good reputation for helping autistic children. And they were excellent. Actually, can't fault them. So he he did okay there. The thing the thing with Harry because he was so passive. He tended to be overlooked, so we didn't have any trouble with him. So he was never violent or aggressive, quite the opposite. Um, so he tended to get overlooked sometimes in the classroom. I did, you know, point this out to the teacher. They did their best, I'm not complaining, but, you know, he would be set a piece of work, he'd do it, and when he'd finished, he would just sit there. He wouldn't. It wouldn't occur to him to tell somebody that he'd finished. So he'd rattle off the work, or whatever it was, in five minutes, and then sit there for the rest of the day. And when he came home, he would basically just sit. I think he was kind of decompressing, but his way of decompressing was to go in to himself and he would just sit on the sofa for about an hour doing literally nothing. And people would ask me, is he okay? And I said, yeah, he's fine. He just mm. needs to do that for a bit. But, but yeah. I was never very physically active. Right. One of the best things we, we did, um, it was quite by chance, was we signed him up for a local karate class, which it was just local as well. And he started doing that when he was about six. And it just suited him down to the ground because it's all about routine and order and hierarchy and discipline. It could have been made for him. And he excelled at that. Did he love and it? And he loved it. And he wrote, learnt all the things that you have to say at the start and at the end, and he was the best. And what Harry really thrives on is praise. Okay, he loves praise. He'll do anything if you say, well done, Harry. And I used to say this to people, what, what's his motivator? What, what reward does he like? And I said, you say, well done, Harry. And that's the, the best motivator for yeah. him. And so he got a lot of praise. He did really well. And by the time he was 12, he was black belt. Don't mess with Harry. Don't mess with Harry. He's a double black belt now. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so he goes into... It's amazing. So he goes into secondary school mainstream again? Yes. With his statement? Yes. Did he have a statement? So he, he, he didn't get a statement. Oh, he didn't get a statement. No. Okay. Because of know, his passive nature. We might have done things differently. But he was very bright. He was very good at school. Um and for him, is he still obsessive? Is he still more, fixating yeah, so about... Yeah, so the issues for him were much more about social interaction. So the academic stuff really was fine. Um, but because he was bright, he wanted to be... He's naturally gregarious, in fact, and he likes having friends. He wanted to have friends. Didn't know how to make them. Didn't really know. Didn't come to him naturally, let's put it that way. So he taught himself... He taught himself, when he was at primary school, he taught himself that, he worked out, that if he went up to some random child and gave him a little sort of tap on the shoulder and yelled, it, 
and ran away, he would instantly recreate a game and they would start running around and playing tag or it or whatever you call it. Or when, you know, football cards were, were all the rage. He collected them not because he was particularly interested in football, but because he knew he could go up to another child and start swapping cards with them. Um, and he worked all these things out by himself, basically, how to make oh, friends. Yeah. And because he's he's very easygoing, he's very... Can you tell me some... I'd like to know. <laughs> he's just an right, adult. He's just very lovable. He's very nice. He's very kind. He's very yeah. gentle. He's very quiet. He's very unaggressive. Did, did, did puberty change that at all? Or um... <sighs> He went through a bit of a rough stage. So it was that sort of awful combination of puberty and uh, changing to secondary school. We knew it was going to be difficult because I think it's, you know, it's, it's difficult for any child. Um, and so Harry did regress somewhat at that stage and he'd been doing really well. Um, he still clearly had a lot of difficulties and he was, he was taken out for the day by a, a friend was having a birthday and they, they, his mum, this friend's mum had taken him and a bunch of other kids out. They went to Chessington or somewhere and she brought them back at the end of the day and she handed Harry over to me and she sort of looked really exhausted and went, he really is autistic, isn't he? And I went, yeah. I believe you now. <laughs> I believe you now, exactly. So to the casual observer, you probably wouldn't, no, not by then anyway, but spend a day with him or even an hour with him and it becomes very apparent. Yeah. And, and that, she was, that's the thing I, I dislike and say, you know, verbal autism is easy autism because... No, it's just different. It's just it's different. different, yeah. So he had this huge sort of episode where he started wetting the bed and he started self-harming, he ran away, he was having meltdowns and all this sort of escalated and eventually we ended up at CAMS, the mental health service, because we didn't know what to do with him. He was, you know, he was really suffering, obviously, and mm. distressed and hurting himself. And he, yeah, he, he ran away at one point and we had to send out a search party of local parents to try and find God, him. Where, we, where was he? We found him at the top of Blythe Hill in the children's playground, eventually, you know, some hours after yeah. school had finished. Thank goodness. Um, and one of the dads found him and kind of had to talk him down. Out of your mind. Saying he didn't want to go home and he wanted to die. And, oh, God. dear Lord. Um, so you really, you've been through the teenage years... Like, age about but, 10 yeah. yeah so we went through cams and they were they were pretty good and we went you know we were there for some weeks once a week and it kind of transpired I'm sure it, it's partly puberty it's partly the hormones kicking in and the thought of secondary school and we eventually managed to get Harry to explain that in his own roundabout way that he was under the impression that once you get to secondary school you have to be an adult and that you have to do all the things that adults do and that he wasn't ready to do any of these things because you're he, not a child you're not he's not a, a child, child anymore. anymore he thought he had to stop being a child he had to get a job oh. he had to get married he had children he had oh. a house all this stuff so very literal, eventually yeah. burst out of him and we all sort of going oh, no you don't have to do any of those things <sighs> You don't ever have to do any of those things yeah. if you don't want to. Yeah. You certainly don't have to do them yeah. now. Something you never thought you needed to explain. You're no. like, oh, okay, maybe... Well, this is it. You, and I've, I've come yeah. across several examples of that recently, a very recent example. And I mean, he's, he's 18 now. 
and uh, we applied for a driving license for him, not because he wants to drive, but it's just so he's got some photo ID, which he needs. And we were filling the form in online and there's a bit where it said, do you want to be an organ donor? And he looked and he said, no. And I said, well, why not? And he said, well, I might need my organs. (laughs) I went, no, they don't take them till after you're dead. And he went, oh. And he genuinely believed, it hadn't occurred to him, that you had to die for yeah. it. You, no, you would die from whatever, and then they might yeah. take your organs if you give them permission. We're filling he in these unsaid, just, these unsaid yes, things that we all, that we all pick take up for granted. Yeah. And I don't know, how do I know that? I don't know. I just did. But he thought they, that meant they could just come and knock on the door one day and say, We need your liver or your eyes. Right eye, please. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I had to explain to him. Once I'd explained it to him, he was like, Oh, okay. And, and that's fine. Yeah. So he then went on to sixth form he stayed at the same school for sixth form and did a levels but he kind of lost interest really um so he did english uh spanish and film studies but he really over the course of those two years he really just lost all interest and wasn't really doing much work he was staying up very late and generally being a, a bit of a teenager he was never it wasn't exactly a rebellion and he was always perfectly pleasant and, and you know, he still was doing his karate and his music and all the things that he enjoyed mm. and wanted to do. But he, he seemed to lose focus and, and couldn't see what the point was of doing these exams, really. So he did them and he passed them all. But in, the, in sort of interim time, he decided that what he really wanted to do was be an actor. It was a complete surprise. And so he signed himself completely of his own volition. He signed himself up at this, I think this was at the, when he was starting his A-levels. He found um, a musical theatre class, which is, runs on a Sunday afternoon every week, up in North London, took himself up there. He's always been very independent, very independent. Yeah. So he learnt, he taught himself how to travel, how to go around London, and he knows, he's had a tube map in his head since he was tiny. Awesome. So he signed himself. So he up signed to this. himself up for this class, and thoroughly enjoyed it. And they do, you know, singing, dancing, and acting, and they put on a show at Christmas. And must have been eighteen months ago. He came home one day and he said that he'd he'd done an audition. I said okay, and that he'd passed the audition. Okay, that's cool. Uh, for drama school in New York. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Okay, right. So, age 17, as far as he was concerned, his plan now was that he was going to go to New York. So, the the boy that was pinning your arms down in (laughs) the monkey music class is now saying he's going to fly to America on his own. leave home at 18 and go to New York. And embark? To do a drama. Acting. Yes. Sure. It was a big shock. Amazing. Amazing. And uh, just... Yes. (laughs) Yes. I <laughs> <laughs> not expected that one. The, the two big problems were, were, one, it was him going off by himself to yeah. New York, which... Which would be frightening for know, any 17-year-old. It would be frightening for any 17-year-old, but Harry is spectacularly vulnerable. Um, and also it was going to cost an arm and a leg. I can't even... Uh, yeah, so, so expensive. Anyway, mm. so... We kind of sat on that for a bit and didn't really know what to do with it until he kind of decided on his own that he wasn't ready to do that to everyone's huge 
unexpressed relief. But you let him come to that conclusion. Let him come to that conclusion on his own, which I think was the best thing to do. So what's happened instead, he's he's kind of skipped a year. So he's, as far as I know, he's currently applying to go to UK drama schools, which would be great. Um, But in the meantime, he's on various sort of... uh, websites and things where he gets bit parts in films and he goes to auditions and all sorts and, and is he happy he's happy at the moment he's very happy he three weeks ago he moved into a flat with a friend he's moved out oh he's got a job his friend who's working said you know why don't you come and work for this so she was working for this agency that provides catering staff for sort of posh events and I don't know how she persuaded him, but it's the best thing. It's like someone, I hope I can not exactly swear, but you can swear. somebody put a rocket up his ass. Uh, yeah. Honestly, from one day to the next, he applied for this job. He had an interview, was signed up and started work almost immediately. And they sign up for the, whatever shifts yeah. they want. And so he's been doing bar work and table waiting and events at... Ascot and the Natural History Museum and the V&A, Wembley. Yeah. So he's travelling all over. He's doing these long shifts. He's getting paid. Yeah. And he'd been doing this for about two weeks when he decided he could afford to leave home. <laughs> so he did. <laughs> so what I'm getting from this is that you can live a seemingly A to B to C life with autism. It doesn't define you. It's something yes. you have, and you'll always have. Yes, and he will. He he will say now that he's autistic. So he, I told, I talked to both my kids because um, Eddie is also on the spectrum, um, and I talked to them both when they were about seven or eight years old about autism and explained that they were on the autism spectrum. And I used the autism support group as a, a sort of something to pin it on and I said you know we we do the trampolining classes and we go on the trips and we meet these other families and that's because you know these children have autism like you do and I said all it means is that your brains are wired a bit differently to most people's and so it doesn't it's not a bad thing it's just different and I said it means you might find some things more difficult but you're much better at other things. Well, it was, I I thought they needed to know. And at the end, I said, you don't, you have any questions? You know, you can ask me anything, any time. Of course, Harry just went, no. (laughs) Eddie, however, sparky little Eddie said, yes. And I said, yes, Eddie, what what do you want to know? And Eddie said, why do we have autism? I went, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Great question. And I actually said, that's probably the only question I can't answer because nobody knows. And this was 10 years ago, and I'm yeah. sure stuff has come on since then. But at the well, time, I said... anything major. There's no known cause. It's just one of those yeah. things. It's just how you're born. Yeah. Um, just like someone could really say, knows. why was I why, in this why terrible anything? accident? Now I'm exactly. in a wheelchair. Why do I... Exactly. So, but they seemed happy enough with yeah. that. And, and that was that. Was that. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> but then Harry did go through a phase in his sort of early teens where he was not exactly in denial, but I would sort of say, oh, look, here's a, here's a, a, a course a drunk for, for uh, young people on the autism spectrum. And he said, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to. So he was kind of trying to move away from it as a defining right. thing, as you say. 
But I think he's embracing it again now. And certainly when he went for his job interview, he did tell them. He said, oh, I told them I was autistic. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's good for him to be honest because I think it does help sometimes. He could help other people and other... Like, to me, like someone who's just at the start of my journey, it's like massively inspiring. When you tell people that your children are on the... um, on the spectrum what would you want their reaction to be I would hope they would go oh okay um how does that affect them or or can you tell me about them or what I I can tell you what I don't want them to say which is I don't want to say oh dear that's a shame or never mind and I specifically don't want them to say oh what's their special talent because that (laughs) no no yeah I mean children are talented but they don't they're not rain man no you know, which is what people still seem to think. Still seem to think. And this is what we're going to try and break. Mm. And as I said in my outro, all children um, with ASD have the ability to learn and grow just with the right support at home and at school. Yes. And And friendships. Yes. And they can amaze us and bring us joy and hilarity. My kids are hilarious. Honestly, they make me laugh every day. They're so funny. And one day, even if you have to wait 15 years, you'll get a hug. (sighs) Yes. Yes, it was worth the wait. Yeah. Thank you, Candida. (laughs) Uh, It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Autism is a spectrum condition. All autistic people share certain difficulties, but being autistic will affect them in different ways. Some autistic people also have learning disabilities, mental health issues, or other conditions, meaning people need different levels of support All people on the autism spectrum learn and develop. With the right sort of support, all can be helped to live a more fulfilling life of their own choosing. To learn more about autism, you can visit the National Autistic Society website on autism.org.uk. This podcast was created, written and edit produced by me, Maisie Clater. And the music that you hear in this podcast was written and produced by Kit Milsom, who also records and edits the show. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe maybe even write a little review and rate us.